If you have your copies of God's Word, please take them now and open to Isaiah chapter 55. Uh, if you didn't bring your own Bible, there should be some in the chairs in front of you, and this will be found on page 615. Isaiah chapter 55, the first five verses. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Amen. Well, at the very core of Christianity, the very core of the message that Christianity holds out to the world lies Ephesians 2.12, that to be without God is to be without hope. The very presupposition of the Christian gospel is that we were made for fellowship with God. And through the division that our sin has brought between a holy God and an unholy people, we are left hopeless in this world. And consequently, we are left restless, devoid of lasting peace. It is, you've heard me say many times, because I think it is so profound, it is the very reality that is given such vivid illustration in God's curse upon Cain, that he would be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. It is the natural state of everyone apart from God, a restlessness that is rooted in that hopelessness, the restlessness of a heart that longs to be reunited to God, but blinded by sin, does not know where to look, and so it looks anywhere and everywhere. Craving peace, it looks to pleasure, it looks to power, it looks to possessions, it looks to superstitions, but in the end it remains without God and therefore without hope. But it is into that void that the Christian gospel proclaims that there is peace to be found in Jesus Christ. It's what Paul continues on to say in Ephesians 2. In our sin, he says, we are uh, of no hope. We are without God in the world. But verse 14 proclaims, Jesus Christ is our peace. In Him, through Him, the very thing for which our souls crave is to be found. 
in him and through him, we can be at rest. We can find peace because in him and through him, we can be reconciled to God. Reconciled to God because he bore our sin. Reconciled to God because he bore all the consequences of our sin so that we might be wholly forgiven, the record of our debt wiped clean, and us made positively holy in the sight of God, clothed in his righteousness given to us, that we might now be at peace in the presence of God forevermore. It's the message, as one man put it, that you are more wicked than you ever dared think, but in Christ you are more loved than you ever dared hope. It's the message that Isaiah has been holding out to the exiles in Babylon. As he continues to proclaim to them the glorious good news that even for them, as wretched as they were in their sin, there was forgiveness to be found. If only, as we were hearing in Sunday school from Hebrews 4, if only they came to the Lord in faith and repentance. And specifically, Isaiah has, has, has burrowed down even further and shown them the way and told them that they're to put their faith and their hope in the servant of the Lord, in the Messiah, in the Christ, as we know now in Jesus, trusting in His work on their behalf, that as Peter paraphrases Isaiah 53, 6, that by the wounds of Christ they would be healed, and though they were straying like sheep, they would be returned to God, their shepherd and the overseer of their souls. But as we've been seeing, as Isaiah continues to proclaim this gospel to these exiles, especially in this latter half of his book, the latter half of this fifth gospel, as we call it, the question keeps coming up, how will you respond to this? Because it's it's a proposition that needs a response. It's a gospel that, that needs a response. And, and the question keeps coming up, how will you respond to this? Now, perhaps that seems like a question with a pretty obvious answer, right? You, you respond by doing what Isaiah has urged you to do, right? You respond by turning from your sin and putting your faith in Jesus, right? And and that's true, and that's obvious. But for some, you understand, this seems like news that is too good to be true. Or perhaps for some, it's news that's too bad to be true. Right? There are some who are blissfully unaware of just how deep their sin runs. And Scripture describes sin as Captivity, it's what we see embodied and illustrated and played out for us in, in the Egyptian captivity, right before the Exodus. It's what we see illustrated and played out for us in the, 
in the Babylonian captivity of these exiles. And it's clear in Scripture that, that sin is, is captivity, but you understand for some it's a gilded cage. And they struggle to hear the testimony of the Holy Spirit in Scripture of just how deep their sin runs and just how hopeless their condition is. I remember seeing a video this past week of a farmer who, who farms so-called free-range chickens. Right? We won't go too far down this rabbit trail, but many eggs that are free-range are actually barn-raised hens. And this is a, a farmer, and he goes to the barn, and he opens the door, and the chickens are there, and they're free to roam within the barn, and they pick at the thing, and he opens the doors wide, and he stands back, and not a single one of them leaves, because their whole world's in that barn. It's all they've ever known. It's where their food is. It's where they've been since they were babies, and, and here the doors are flung open, and freedom is offered to them, but... They cannot conceive of exiting. You understand, for, for some, many even, that's the nature of their sin, a captivity that is so compelling, so comfortable to them, that they desire nothing greater. But for others, of course, the, for those who feel the weight of their sin, who know at least something of their corruption, there can be this, this devastating feeling that this gospel is undoubtedly good news but it's surely not for me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. There's no way that a holy God could love a sinner like me. Especially no way that He could love me to the extent that He would send His Son to die for me, so that just by putting my faith in Him, I would not perish, but be granted everlasting life. There's just no way. This is too good to be true. And that's, that's the response that Isaiah is anticipating from his readers. All the way along, Isaiah writing to, to readers who will live in Babylon long after he has died, his expectation is that they will read this gospel and say, Isaiah, this is good but it cannot be for me. And so wonderfully, Isaiah continues to beat this gospel into the heads of his readers, and he continues to reach through time and grab them by the hand and says, come with me, sinner, and I will lead you in how to respond to this gospel. And he does it again here. He's just brought this gospel in these last chapters, Isaiah 40 to the end. He's just brought it to the climactic point. I think we've said before, going through, this is one of these books, much like the four gospels in the New Testament, that it's like wandering through the foothills of the Himalayas, I would imagine, not having actually been there. But you climb to one peak thinking that this is the top, only then to see another grander one before you. And there's a sense in which this, this latter half has been built on four peaks. 
each getting greater and grander than the one before. Every servant song opening up and expanding the gospel, and, and the fourth servant song being the, being the Everest of it all. Isaiah has just, has just brought all of the threads of the gospel, knitting them, weaving them together in that fourth servant song in which he has shown us the, the how of all this good news, that all of this would be true because the servant would come as a vicarious representative, standing in the place of his people, bearing the guilt of their sin that they might be forgiven and set free. And having taken us to this Everest, he now attaches what one commentator called a tailpiece to it. So important is this, that he will not just leave it with us, but he attaches this tailpiece, this, this epilogue, we could say, in which he comes to his readers, and he leads them by the hand, and he shows them, shows us how to properly respond to the gospel. Now, of course, we've as we just said, we've seen him do this before. I don't know how you think of the prophets, but there's a popular notion that they're dark and foreboding figures. Right? And we can understand where that popular misconception comes from, can't we? It's, you, you flick through the prophets at the end of the Old Testament. What strikes you? Uh, predictions of looming judgment. Uh, passages of, of unflinching condemnation. And it's easy to imagine the men who wrote these books as dark and foreboding and as cold and flinty men. G.K. Chesterton, who we love, did not love us. And he once wrote of Presbyterians, that they are those who prey on hills and high crags and have learned to look down on the world more than to look up to heaven. We can easily think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and their colleagues in a similar vein. But just as that description is unfair to Presbyterians, it's unfair to the prophets. Yes, they are men who speak strong words, but they are men who speak strong words only so that their readers might see their danger, might see that their cage is not as gilded as they thought it was, that they might see the depths of their misery in their sin, that they might repent of their sins, and that they might be reconciled to God. And more than that, as we have seen of Isaiah, he not only speaks strong words of condemnation, but he is a man who routinely comes in with words of tender counsel. What is the heart of Isaiah? It's a heart of great compassion. Isaiah is a man who has a heart that mirrors the heart of God in Psalm 103 verse 14. Isaiah knows the frame of his readers. And he remembers that his readers are dust. And he knows how unbelievable this gospel can be. 
And so back at the end of chapter 50, you remember we saw how he confronted his readers. He asked them if they believed the gospel and then led them, you remember, in a kind of sinner's prayer. And he does it again here. Uh, having brought this message to a climax in the four servant song, he doesn't leave his readers hanging, but now he comes and leads them in a proper response. Right? And last week, as Jonas preached, we saw the first part of that response was to grasp the total paradigm-shifting, life-changing, world-altering extent of this gospel, and to rejoice. But you remember those evocative images that Isaiah used, images that strike at the very, at the very depths of our emotional range. The image of a barren woman filled with sorrow because she is unable to bear children, an abandoned wife, the image of a besieged and broken down city, but into it the promise of that woman delighting in her growing family, the promise of that marriage restored, the promise of that city now rebuilt and beautified with precious metals and costly stones. It was Isaiah's way of once again illustrating for his readers the devastation and hopelessness of life in sin without God, but of showing them the abundant and fruitful and beautiful life that is to be found in and through the servant, in and through Jesus Christ. And now he continues on. And here in chapter 55, he urges them, he urges them then to grasp it, to believe it, and to come in and drink deeply at the wells of God's grace. It's the logical conclusion to everything that he's been teaching them. To see that in this gospel that he has been proclaiming, the desires of their hearts are to be found. And look again at what he says here. Isaiah bids his readers to come and embrace this gospel and be deeply satisfied. Right, this is another evocative image, just like those in chapter 54, that's designed to, to hit us in our emotions, to hit us in our heart, to hit us even in our, in our gut. This is a visceral image that Isaiah paints here, just like he had done in 54. It's a visceral image to imagine a, a woman who cannot conceive of a child. It's a visceral image to, to conceive of a woman who's been abandoned by her husband. It's a visceral image to think of a, of a city besieged and bombed and broken down. It's a visceral image that is given to us here now. It's the image of a, of a beggar. Uh, a, a beggar, a, a, a homeless man, who's invited to come in to the king's banquet hall to have his thirst slaked and his hunger satisfied. But, but notice the, 
the promise that's held out to him, the offer that is given to this, this poor and wretched man. It's not just an offer of bread and water. This is not just a, a, an offer of, of mere sustenance, emergency rations, just to give him basic nourishment. This is not a red cross tent that he is being invited to come into. Now, what is the message that goes to this beggar? Come in, the message goes, come in and buy, buy wine and, and milk. Right? Those are images of abundance and satisfaction and joy, right? We've said it many times before, but there's a reason why the promised land was called a land flowing with milk and honey. Those are images of, of, of nutrients and, and delicious nutrients. Right? These are images of abundance and satisfaction, riches even, being laid out before this man. Come in, the invitation comes. Come in and buy, buy not just water and bread. Get, get yourself wine and milk. Buy and eat and be satisfied and even rejoice at this table. It's a feast laid out before him, a, a sumptuous repast. And it's his for the taking. Come and buy. The, the offer continues. Come and buy. Listen, without money without price. Just come and take whatever you want. Pull up your seat and, and, and feast yourself on all that is laid out before you. And don't worry about the cost. It's been covered. Just let your heart be satisfied with the bounty of good things. Eat and rest and rejoice. And in verse 2, Isaiah asks them, this is the invitation of the gospel, why would you look anywhere else? It's a rhetorical question, of course. It's built on the absurdity of turning away from such a rich offer. If, if there's such a feast on offer, why would you? Why would you go anywhere else? We understand what, what Isaiah is doing, don't we? He's addressing his readers as spiritual beggars, as those who throughout their lives have found everything wanting and in the last analysis find themselves spiritually destitute. And here Isaiah is saying on, in the offer of the gospel described and, and filled out in everything that he has said and brought to a head in the fourth servant song, Isaiah is saying to his readers, he's saying to the exiles, he's saying to you this morning here, there is a spiritual banquet laid out for you, and it is free for the taking. So why on earth would you go anywhere else? What's the promise of Psalm 37, 4? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You understand that's not a promise saying that if you delight yourself in the Lord, He's going to give you anything that you want. It's far deeper, more profound than that. It's this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and, and He will give you the thing that your heart craves. Delight yourself in the Lord, and, and those deep desires that lie in the very core of your being will be satisfied, and you will be at rest, and you will be at peace. So why would you look anywhere else? It's the key question. Why would you try to satisfy the deep desires of your health, uh, of your heart with anything else? It's absurd. That's what the image is built on absurdity. Let's, let's try and get in it a little more. 
Let's try and feel this image a little more. Right? There's a, a video went viral a few weeks ago. Came out of Portland. Lots of viral videos coming out of Portland right now. And it was of a man in a, in a Walmart parking lot, grocery store parking lot. He's clearly destitute, homeless, appears to be on some kind of narcotic, and he has this flat of water. And he's just unscrewing all the tops and dumping all the water out into the parking lot. He bought it with food stamps, but he was going to exchange the bottles for cash. Because with cash, you can buy drugs. Now, let's not get distracted by the pros and cons of welfare or bottle return schemes. Let's just think about the absurdity of that situation. Here is a man who'd been given an offer of sustenance that he could buy without money or price. But what was his choice? It was to spend money on things that were not bread. Park the politics to one side for a minute and just think of this man's humanity and the utter heartbreak and devastation of someone so imprisoned by their addiction that they reject the free offer of help. That video went viral because it's shocking, and it's shocking because it's so twisted. But you understand it's the same picture that Isaiah is painting here. Right? Sin is twisted, and there are people who will hear this free offer of the gospel and who will turn their backs on it. Right Here is the gospel that says to you, sinner, come, you have a deep sore in your heart. You have an, an ache, a restlessness, a peacelessness that you have tried your whole life long to satisfy, and you have never been able to do it. Close maybe, once or twice, but never lasting. You have a God-shaped hole, as Pascal put it. And the gospel stands and it says to you, come, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. The gospel says to you, come in, you hungry and thirsty, and sit at this great banquet laid out for you. Eat and drink and rejoice. But there are some, many, many perhaps, who will hear that, and instead of it being a bomb to their souls, they will only ever hear it as a threat. They will only ever hear a threat to their idols that they love so much. They will count the cost, and it will be too much. Now, it is a high cost. As the saying goes, the gospel is free, but it will cost you everything. The offer is there for the taking. The banquet is spread before you. But in order to have it, you must obey the first commandment. Forsaking all others, you must wholeheartedly devote yourself to God. You must trust Christ and put your faith in Him. You must renounce all other would-be saviors. You must forsake all other would-be gospels. You must look to Christ alone for your salvation. But the thing is, it will cost you everything. But these things, 
that you lose are really things of no consequence. Now, they seem like they are. But compared to the riches that are found in Christ, they are nothing. Listen to how Paul describes it. Having described his life of intellectual prowess, having listed his resume of institutional power and significance, having described his life of discipline and devotion, having described his, his noble family heritage in Philippians 3. Right, do you understand why he describes himself in Philippians 3? If you met that Paul, you think, what a guy. You think, I'm in the presence of greatness. I mean, this man is borderline nobility, and he is smart, and he is rich, and he is powerful. What a guy. But Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, whatever gain I had, I counted it all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, it doesn't matter who I was before. It doesn't matter the power that I wielded before. It doesn't matter my great wealth before. My family heritage is nothing. Everything that he saw as prestigious and significance, all of the idols that he had once clinged to, he now counted as, as rubbish. Even the, the, the range of the word allows even, even dung, he calls it. What he had received in Christ, had so surpassed what he walked away from that it was no longer anything to him. But to some, many even, maybe you this morning, all this seems like too much. You've built a life on a facade of strength. You've devoted yourself to your career. You've found great significance in the success of your family. You liked your pleasures too much. Whatever it is, whatever idol you built your life on, it hasn't given you the security and the satisfaction that you crave, but yet you still hope that it might come through for you. And it seems like too much to forsake, too much to admit that you have been wrong all this time. But listen, I promise you, that to put your faith in Christ is never a fool's errand. Because this promise is one that has been secured by covenant so that its outcome is guaranteed. That's the reference in verses 3, 4, and 5. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David that through one of his descendants, an unshakable kingdom would be secured for the people of God. In 2 Samuel 7.10, God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. A promise of peace, a promise of rest, a promise of hope, a promise of a kingdom, a, a promised land in which peace would be secured for the people of God under the rule and reign of a holy, benevolent sovereign. 
It's the very kingdom that Jesus declared that he had come to establish. And listen to what Jesus said in Luke 22. He said in Luke 22, 28, You are those who stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. You understand that's not the disciples being promised preferential treatment. This is the promise of the gospel applied to the disciples because they obeyed the first commandment because they had no other gods before God, because their trust was in Jesus. And so even when trials came upon them, still they stayed with Him, because as one of them said, where else would we go? This is the promise of the gospel to you, that those who are with Christ, that those who trust in Christ, whose allegiance has been given to Christ, you have the security of this promise. You understand here, we miss it in English, but that word assign is a word that means given by way of covenant. It's a promise, and any promise that God makes is an unbreakable promise because it is impossible for God to lie. So lay hold of that promise and find the rest that you crave. But Christian, listen, that point of application is the same to you this morning. And maybe you came to Christ years ago. Maybe it has been a long, long time since you first put your trust in Jesus and professed your faith in Him. But listen, there is a tendency in us to forget the wonders of our salvation. And in doing so, to be drawn away by the false promises of the Gospels. Now, not wholly. You haven't forsaken the faith, but a little. So that you're not quite content in Christ alone. And you feel like if you only had this one extra thing, then everything would be okay. But look at what Isaiah is saying here. In Christ, you wretched sinner, you who were destitute in your sin, you have been brought to sit at this great feast in the kingdom of Christ. Right here again, the, the, the wonders of the gospel, here afresh the depths of the love of God for you. Why? Here Isaiah's question, why are you tempted to spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which is not, does not satisfy? Hear the absurdity of this image. It's the image of you sitting at the table of Christ with this banquet spread out before you, saying to yourself, you know, I wish I had a Twinkie. It's absurd. There is no greater satisfaction and joy to be found. There is nothing to be added to this feast that is laid out for you. There is no greater satisfaction than that which is found in Christ. And so, hear the call of this text. It is evangelistic, but Christians, we need to be evangelized all the day long. See again the riches of this kingdom that you have been brought into in Christ. Here again, 
how it loosens you from your idols, how it lowers your defenses, how it quiets your fears, how it says to you, Christian, all that you need you have in Christ, and so be at peace. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian, to be able to lay down our burdens, to stop our restless wanderings, and simply to be at peace in the nearer presence of our God. Let us pray.